This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Great to see you. So I wanted to start by asking you to read um, a little bit of the book so that people get a taste for it. And I thought if you could read the part about how you get your superpowers every yeah, morning. I would be happy to. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, the only thing you need to know um, from this passage before I start for background is that John is the name of my husband. John and I have several small daily rituals. Every morning, he wakes up first, makes coffee, and brings me a cup in bed. Then I thank him and tell him how wonderful I think he is. This small act of romance sets the tone for our day and, in turn, our life together. Later, when he leaves his office, he texts me, on the way. This still gives me a little thrill like the feeling of knowing you're going to see your crush. And this too is a little ritual. In a sense, everything we do a particular way that holds meaning for us is a ritual, especially when there are other ways it could be done. He could just come home without sending a text, but by letting me know he's coming, I get to enjoy that giddy sense of anticipation. We all have these rituals in one way or another, Maybe it's the route you take to work or the way you prepare dinner for your kids. There's a little narrative that goes along with the, so many of our daily tasks. When I moisturize my face before bed, I imagine the legends of the fountain of youth. That's the story being told in every ad for anti-wrinkle cream. These small rituals give us comfort and offer a kind of rhythm, a reliable pattern, and I think, an artificial sense of certainty. If I can really slow the hands of time with a skincare routine, it will be because of science, not magic, if we must delineate between the two. Although doing so can rob us of the thrill of both. When my daughter and I leave the playground or some other place frequented by small runny noses, I ask her if she's ready for the magic potion we put on our hands to protect us from sicknesses. Antibacterial gel is not usually the stuff of fables, but it could be. Imagine encountering a sect somewhere who devoutly carry small bottles of clear fluid around with them and believe wholeheartedly that rubbing the contents on their hands shields them from danger. We would think they believed in magic. Why don't we, just because we know how and why it works? Why does the provability of something rob us of the thrill of it? Even the coffee John brings me every morning feels like sorcery. Something grows in the earth. It's harvested, roasted, ground, and percolated. I drink it, and like Alice, I am changed. It wakes me up, gives me strength and speed, superpowers, really. At the end of the day, a glass of wine is another kind of potion. 
Another plant that comes out of the earth is readied by technique and time, and when drunk has the power to unwind you, but you take a step back and quell stress. So many everyday rituals amount to a magic trick being performed by biology, technology, or some other branch of science. How different would our daily lives be if we found ways to celebrate even the smallest wizardry in life? Hmm. Thank you. So you write that rituals are narratives, stories that we tell ourselves. Why is it important that our small stories of coffee in the morning or the magic potion of antibacterial lotion connect to larger stories? Well, I think there's something my mother always says, there's no refuge from change in the cosmos. We are all, no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, we are all dealing with these this, the constant change of life on earth. Entrances and exits, babies are born, people die, the seasons change, children grow up, and it's overwhelming the amount of unsteadiness that we all have to deal with. You can't predict the future and it tortures us. And there's so much change to process. And so I think rituals, holidays, celebrations, funerary rituals, um, you know, coming of age rituals, all of that is a way for us to wrap our minds around this constant change. And sometimes there's a narrative that goes along with it. And sometimes it's just this sort of abstract idea we have that like, this is what you do, you know, um, you have a wedding or you, you know, have a party. And I think, um, I think it's because without it, it would be really intolerable to just try to figure out how to navigate what is happening every day, every year. So, um, so you're, you're, um, referencing the existential dread that <laughs> dogged you early in life. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And can you maybe talk a little bit about, um, I mean, has anyone here ever experienced existential dread? <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, For the podcast, there were a lot of hands. Few hands. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so the sense of existential dread that comes from knowing in some sense that there will always be change, that we will die, and trying as hard as we can to put that knowledge um, uh, yes. out of our heads um, has effects on us, right, and removes us from that sense of awe that you um, you referenced. And could you maybe talk a little about the connection between sure. dread and awe? Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, I think with those two things are those two feelings. I mean, existential dread, right? If, if you, you know, so I'll have that moment where you're like, we live on a tiny planet, space is huge, we are little, we're mortal, in the grand scheme of things, nothing matters. I mean, it's really easy to just quickly spiral um, out into a total freak out. And I think a lot of people have experienced that at one time or another, certainly I have. Um, but then I think the other side of that and the thing that you can sort of push through to um, maybe, it, which also does feel like a rite of passage too, is the idea of like, well, we're here right now. And that's amazing. And if you don't think that everything happens for a reason, which I don't, and you don't think that everything is sort of preordained, um, 
then the idea that anything works out, that you were born, that your great-great-grandparents met, you know, is astonishing and can, I, th I think, give us a sense of awe. But when you talk about dread and awe together, the first thing that came to my mind is, you know, the really powerful elements of nature. And I think that it goes back to just our earliest awareness as a species, right? A storm, a fire, an earthquake, that sense of awe and dread, something so much larger than us, so much more powerful, but also astonishing in this way that must be, you know, it makes your eyes big and in some weird way that danger can also be like a thrill and I think so much of what we have created for ourselves is a way of sort of facing that um, terror and also you know wonder um, of nature and I think the more we understand our place in the universe, the more information we have, the more pictures we get back about what's, you know, far beyond our solar system, the more awe and maybe existential dread we, we can, we have to sort of contend with. Um, uh, you're too young to remember the moment, but I remember the, um, the moon landing in 1969 as, um, you know, just a giant step, of course, for, you know, small step for man, giant step for mankind. And I remember um, uh, it feeling like a really industrial achievement, that it didn't feel like, it felt awesome in some ways. And I think the astronauts had said really beautiful things about, you know, Earth slipping from view and all of that. But but the actual, like, planting of the flag, the sense of winning a competition oh, sure. was so couched in this idea of science readying us for a future in which we would dominate and um, like nationalistically uh, yeah, yeah all of that and I think it was just embedded and it was really you know I was, I was like 10 years old and um, it it, um, it it was incredibly powerful but I remember it that way and then in 1980 like the year before you were born, your father's um, Cosmos came out on PBS 13 episodes of Cosmos. And I remember that event as being the first time I equated the universe with um, something that really had to do with me. Oh, that's so beautiful to hear, Carolyn. <laughs> that's so that the really moves me. Yeah, yeah. not so much. <laughs> I mean, it, but but he said um, a couple of things in in the first episode. I went back and watched the first episode, and oh my God, it's so hilarious. <laughs> in a lot of ways, but it, it's still really powerful. Um, and he said, we need imagination and skepticism both. We will not be afraid to speculate, but we will be careful to distinguish speculation from fact. So wonder and skepticism were kind of the twin gods in your house growing up. Um, yes. and, and I think that was really not typical of that time, you know, coming out of the 50s and 60s mm. and um, uh, into this new era of science being connected really to wonder, even as industrialization, you know, as industrial society became more potent. That's very interesting. Well, I think one of the things that my parents did so well in the Cosmos series, everything they wrote together, because um, they collaborated on everything and the way that they were at home was this idea, and I write about this in the book, that 
skepticism need not mean pessimism and that critical thinking um, doesn't necessarily take or shouldn't take the magic out of things or the thrill. I mean, I always struggle with the language because words like magic and spiritual, you know, have this theistic connotation and I don't, but I still use them because I think they really crystallize, you know, that feeling and we don't have other words for them, but that sort of thrill and beauty. And my parents really instilled in me the idea that at every turn, reality as revealed by science, the things that could stand up to scrutiny, the things that could be tested, were just so much more astonishing than what we came up with before we had the information that was available to us through experiments, through the scientific method, through exploration, um, and through really holding ourselves to account by, you know, challenging our our sometimes our most deeply held beliefs. Um, and I think that they they really took pleasure and joy um, in in learning and and in being able to communicate what they had learned um, to other people. And it was great for a wide audience of people who weren't necessarily science experts or maybe hadn't had a very good science education or just had some uninspired or uninspiring high school teachers. Um, but it was great for me because um, that those same skills made it them really good at explaining things to like a small child. Um, and they were really patient about it. And they what, what I think was so special was that if I could ask a question to which they didn't know the answer, that was like I had done the best thing that I could do. And, you know, there was, I never once got a like, that's just how it is, you know, kind of answer. And that was so meaningful to me. And, you know, the idea of asking a a good question, a difficult question, you know, sometimes it was something that we would go over to the Encyclopedia Britannica and find out the answer. And sometimes it was, you know, a question to which we don't, you know, there is no answer. We don't know the answer. Maybe we'll find out in a thousand years or questions to which we will each find out the answer in time, but, um, but we don't know. And that's the other thing. My parents, some, you know, sometimes the answer was that we don't know. And, and that was okay too. And I think that was really revelatory for me. There's um, a moment in the book um, where, as a little girl, you say something like to your father, you have to go to bed, and mm. your mother says good night and see you in the morning, and you say you're going to be here in the morning, but you know, you're, you say to your dad, you're going to be here, you're not going to die. Right. And he doesn't say like, of course not. Well, he was like <laughs> a real, like he was a, t- okay, so two, two things for background. My dad was like totally devout accuracy zealot like he really wanted to get things right um no matter what and I was like a very morbid weird child um and so this combination of characteristics led to every night I I mean I was just really obsessed I mean this is sort of how the introduction of the book starts I was just like totally and remain totally fascinated and astonished with this idea of mortality and like we're all walking around animated and then it goes away. And it's the, 
I mean, it's insane. It really, I still can't get over it. It's astonishing. And I mean, it sounds so naive, but I really, it amazes me. Um, and so I had a lot of questions about death, which were, I'm sure, constant for my parents. And at night, I mean, I was also like a little neurotic. Um, not, not anymore, though. <laughs> um, but uh, so that's all sorted out. No, just kidding. Um, but I, I, so I would say to my parents before bed, you know, like, don't forget, don't die. Um, like kind of cheerful, but just like quick reminder. And um, my mom is like really also very committed to accuracy and she's a science communicator um but she's also like super super rose-colored glasses optimist i would say and so she would say um okay um and uh, and you know and it was like you know she and i don't know if it was because my dad was a little bit older or he already had had some like you know health issues over the years or just a combination of that and just he was so committed to like total accuracy that he would say i will do my best and then we would, you know, I would go to sleep and, and, you know, it was just, <laughs> yeah, do my best, which was true. I mean, which was true. He did his best. And, um, I don't know. I think there's, you know, it's like, it's so easy to, especially now living in this sort of modern culture where we're so removed from our own mortality or the mortality of, of people we love because I mean it's wonderful if you live in a safe place and you have access to medical care it's good you know that 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 it's not part of our daily lives like it was for all of history until very recently but it's also this thing that we sort of ignore in this way and I don't know I don't know I mean of course it's hard to think about it all the time but I also think some of, we were talking earlier about some of the rituals and celebrations that are this time of year in the northern hemisphere um halloween um samhain um uh dia de los muertes um all these things that are and that are really of all souls day that are really about facing mortality and these you know sometimes in this gleeful way um and i think it's so connected to this time of year um because it's like the idea that winter is coming and it's going to get dark and it's going to be scarier and there you know for most of history it's like there might not be enough food and we just didn't know you know and, it, and i think it was it's just like we to face that, to look at that and then say, okay, well, what are we going to do? And like as, you know, the leaves are starting to fall, we have to face this. And so I think it's kind of amazing and this like really beautiful sort of subversive, ironic thing that it's like, well, we're just going to have these like parties about our deepest fears and we're like going to get like children really high on sugar and like let them be totally crazy and we're just going to wear whatever we want and like be totally wild because who knows? We don't know how much longer we're here. I mean, it's funny because it's like, you know, we don't really connect it with that when you're like, you know, getting in your whatever, you know, like Snow White costume to go out or whatever. And I, but I really think that, um, that it's in there and I think it's really useful for us. And I think it's something that makes sense. 
So again, it's the idea of connecting the personal story being our way into the larger story, mm-hmm. our way into empathy with others, our way into connection with history and the past. Mm-hmm. And um, and just poignantly, you know, it, the, the story of your father saying, you know, I'll do my best. Um, you know, tragically, he died when you were very young, when you yeah. were 14. Yeah. And so you did have to confront yeah. um, your worst fear. And um, I wonder, uh, just, you know, growing up in this really loving family that told you again and again, like, really, the miracle is that we're all here now. Yeah. It's not that we're going to be here forever. It's not, you know, yeah. that everything is perfect. Yeah. But but here we are, and look at the miracles that brought everything together. So I'm wondering about the legacy for you as an artist and as a writer and as a thinker and as a mother, because yeah. the book is a lot about being a mother yeah. and looking at this little girl yeah. and saying, how do I not instill you with fear and right. existential dread? <laughs> but rather... A little is good, I think. I really want to, you don't want to have no existential dread. I mean, maybe that's too too far. <laughs> right, right. So I think, I think your first short film... Um, the yeah. uh, bastard with yeah. uh, Kirsten Dunst yeah. that you wrote, she acted in, you wrote it together. No, we wrote it together, she directed she it. She directed it. Yeah. And um, uh, I wonder if you could talk, because you had the film before the child. Right? Yes, by by a number of years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the influence of your life with your parents, the show Cosmos, your parents' collaboration, you know, losing your father on your own work, and particularly Bastard, which is an interesting story. Well, it is. It's a, It's like seven minutes long. Um, and it is like a little, it's a, well, I'll just tell you the punchline. Okay. It's been out for like nine years. It's fine. I mean, I don't even think it's available like anywhere, but it was this great movie. We had a really great cast and it was, it, it just, it was a little riddle. I, that's how I like to think about it. And it was this, um, it, it, I really have always been interested with the, of the idea that when we learn things happened a really long time ago, it lends this weight to it. And our sort of, the way we think about it and what we might be sort of skeptical about if someone told us it happened yesterday is different if it happened oh I don't know like 2,000 years ago so um, it's modern day and it's just a man and a woman are walking along she's very pregnant there's some conflict between them and then there's three guys in a car who are like looking for them but we don't know why and they are schlepping along and they find like a motel do you get where this is going and but there's the motel is completely full um, and there's a like little shed that the guy who's running the motel gives them and she's going into labor and the three guys find them and she has a little baby boy. And it's when half the people who saw it were like, what the F was that? And the other half of the people were like, oh, I totally get it. Christmas. Um, and, um, and I just, I don't know. I guess I just was like, what, you know, when we put things in a different context and we, we put them, you know, when we contrast the things that if you're brought up with something, 
um, and told something all your life versus if you encounter it later, how differently you look at it, how you question what you're told. I mean, we all, of course, you know, see these things differently. If you've told something all your life from childhood, it's going to be different than if some, you know, someone shows up tomorrow and tells you something that sounds astonishing. But um, my, yeah, in terms of how it connects to um, my my parents and their work, I think it's so much about just this this idea of like curiosity and the way that human beings, how the way we've organized ourselves, like they would always sort of like a little bit tongue in cheek, but talk about things that if you were an extraterrestrial and you came to Earth and you saw humans doing X, Y, and Z, or, you know, some ritual we had, or, you know, some funny thing that we do, it would be inexplicable or just seem bizarre. I mean, we do it all the time where we're very, it's very easy when you, you know, encounter something in, you know, let's say like National Geographic that some culture is doing on the other side of the world to say, oh, well, that's, um, I don't, you know, to have some not totally positive reaction to it, but it's very hard for us to look at ourselves and see our rituals and our, I mean, this is sort of like a random one, but I was talking the other day, um, you know, like at Christmas time, NORAD like tracks Santa for children. Like if you just like took a step back from that and you were like, there's some, we're somewhere else, somewhere you've never been. The government, ha- they have, okay, their religion there, part of it sort of is this thing where the sky comes in the winter time and he comes into everybody's house and he, whatever, he has a particular outfit and children leave him cookies. Okay, that's fine. But in a government that is a secular government, and this is also kind of weirdly secular, but the, like, the military forces of this government help, like, go along with this and, like, give overtime and, like, resources to this. And I'm not saying, like, oh, they should stop doing that. I'm just saying, it's hard sometimes to take that step back about ourselves and say, wow, that's, <laughs> that's funny that we decided that that was something that is a value to us, you know? And I'm not, like, let the record show, I'm not saying there should be no pretend Santa tracking. Um, I'm just saying that it's, you know, it's, it's very easy to pass judgment on the customs of other people in other places and very hard for us to look at ourselves um, under that same lens. Right, right. Um, I imagine part of the fun of writing the book was uh, having a chance to really research rituals from around the world. And I think, you know, so much of the book is about really ritual as a form of memory that ties generations together. And also like as performance art pieces, really. Yeah. yeah. And and I think too, um, you know, as I mean, the idea of NORAD tracking Santa is on one level, um, pretty scary. Um, (laughs) But but in another way, it suggests possibly a note of mental health in our society that it's able to hold um, some ambiguity. It's yeah. it's whimsical. I would describe it as whimsical. And which and is, that, I'm good with that. That's fine. I'm for whimsy. And that there's there's a need in humans to um, to tell these narratives, to tell these stories, and for us to um, 
uh, hold multiple stories um, culturally. So I wondered if you could share, there's just some wonderful rituals that oh. you mentioned of coming of age and yes. ways that, that we we teach children or enable them to experience the thrill of becoming an adult rather right. than just forcing them into the... Right. Now it's just like, okay, well, yeah, off to the office. You're an adult now. No, that wouldn't be that good. Um, no, I mean, so much of what I'm interested in too is the way that at the root of so many of our celebrations and traditions, um, it's an actual, tangible, provable, scientific event that's happening, changing of the seasons, right? Um, or like the biological change of going from childhood to adulthood, right? Puberty is like, that's real, that's biological, and all, and it's really intense, and like, oh my goodness, you know? And it's really like, you know, when you like know a kid and then you don't see them for a long time and then they're a teenager and it's really like kind of unnerving or like when you were a kid and you would see somebody you hadn't seen in like 10 like your parents friends or somebody and they'd be like oh my god you're 15 and you'd be like yeah um but it's um it's just mind-boggling so again processing these changes that are real changes that have scientific you know um, explanations and really detailed information that we can get into um, about what happens, let's say, in the human body coming of age. But the idea that we also almost all over the world agree that, like, we have to, like, celebrate this and mark it and, and acknowledge that it's happening. And, you know, one of my very favorites, um, to come, I mean, right, there's, like, sweet 16s and bar mitzvahs and quinceañeras and, like, everything you've been to and you know there's all sorts of like you know confirmation religious things where it's like okay now you're an adult and which was like a bar mitzvah too you know you're an adult in the religious group that you are a member of um but like some of them are just these i mean like one of my favorite rituals in the whole book is so in vanuatu which is like in the south pacific like i think it's like about a thousand miles off of the coast of australia um so the adult men have this tradition where, um, so you climb to, uh, there's like a, you know, landing in a, um, very tall tree. There's like a balcony, you know, and you climb up there and you greet your community down below and you, um, tie a pliable vine to your ankles and you jump off and it's called land diving and it's, um, usually totally fine and then um um, and do it and it's like but the first time you do it when you're like a young guy coming of age as this thing of now you're going to be a man um it's a very big thing and your community comes around when you land um and celebrates you and then your mother destroys your favorite childhood object and i i mean which like kind of sounds harsh but i'm like that is like in terms of it being like a perform, like everything we're doing in these rituals being a performance art piece. And again, it's so easy when we see somebody else doing it, we're like, uh, but you know, we're doing them too all the time. You know, wedding is a performance art piece, you know, all these things. But it just seemed like that one was so this like perfect crystallization of what it feels like to grow up is you should do some, like it's terrifying. And then you like lose something that you like, 
was meaningful to you, that's made you feel safe. And then you, um, like, are a grown up, and everyone's like, yeah, man, you did it. Good work. <laughs> so I think that that was one of my very favorites. That was book. my favorite, too. Yeah. That was my favorite, too. Um, maybe slight, a slight um, veer in direction. Um, the, the book began as an essay for New York Magazine. Um, it's the, the cut, Lessons of Immortality and Mortality from my father, Carl Sagan. And um, the essay went viral. And um, I wondered, did you plan to write a book? Were you glad to write a book? Um, I, I was glad to write a book. I am glad to write a book. I did not plan to write a book. I So the essay was really born out of I um, my parents' papers. So like all their work from like, you know, two decades together. And then like all this stuff from my dad's childhood, like things he drew when he was like a little boy in Brooklyn and like his, like, I mean, his report cards, his mother must have known that he was like really special or she maybe was just like a pack rat, but she kept all this stuff. Um, and so in like 2013, um, they it all, everything went into the Library of Congress, and there was this ceremony, um, and it was so moving. And there was like all this. They played all this footage of my dad when he was young, and they had all these like pictures of him and like home videos of him when he was a teenager that I like didn't even know existed. And it, I was a wreck. I mean, I just like. I mean, I, it was like very formal, serious thing dressed up and I just like cried uncontrollably for like two hours. Um, but like months later, I started to have that nagging feeling that I had an essay inside me about it. And um, it was really about this idea that like I thought, oh, their papers are going to go into the Library of Congress. And in this way, in this very, I mean, you know, like not immortality because like you know the sun's gonna burn out and like you know our species we're either gonna destroy ourselves or we're gonna evolve into something else that doesn't care about the stuff we care about so that's not like real like the idea of like real eternal immortality but that this idea that he was gonna sort of live on a little bit longer and then in a couple hundred years maybe there would be you know, school children looking at his stuff. Um, and like in that way, he would be here in quotes a little longer. And it just, when I got there and realized, you know, and saw it all and I realized it was like, you know, I mean, it's beautiful. The Library of Congress is amazing, but it's a mausoleum. You know, it's not a temple to eternal life. It's a it's a mausoleum. Anyway, so like that started percolating into something that I was like, I I have to, you know, not like I. It was like almost like a. <laughs> it sounds so weird, but it's like almost like a. I don't feel a little shy saying this, but like almost like a bodily function. You're like, I have to write this. Like, I just like, I got to get this out of me. So I wrote that and I wasn't, sorry, I don't know why I described it that way. I'm going to be embarrassed later. Um, <laughs> I, um, uh, but and people really responded to it because it was about this idea of, you know, facing the shortness of everything. But the idea that, 
that we're here at all, that we were ever born, that my dad was here for 62 years and I got to know him and be with him, you know, for the time that we overlapped. It was amazing. And that if, and then my parents really did instill in me the idea that like, if it went on forever, it would not be as special. And so people really responded to that. And then um, people were like, oh, well, you should write a book. And I was like, I couldn't possibly. Um, no, I was like, uh, that would be really nice. But I don't like this is the whole essay. I don't. And so I started thinking a little bit more about what um, what I wanted to say and what was really meaningful to me. And I just can't. And it was sort of was around the same time that my husband and I started planning a family. And um, it just became clear that, you know, when you have a little person who's getting ready to arrive, you know, you have to ask yourself some questions about what you want to instill in them and what you want to celebrate with them and what you want to show I mean, you can't control what's meaningful to them, but what you want to show them is meaningful to you. And, um, and I started thinking about, you know, I'm like my family is, we're, I mean, we're secular, but we're Jewish. And so we have sort of found these ways to, you know, we have like a secular Passover Seder and we like, you know, do these things. Like we go to the cemetery, you put a stone on somebody, you know, someone you loves headstone um and these things that sort of connect you to your ancestors even if you don't necessarily have the same theology that they had um and you know what what are what are all those rituals about what are we doing why are we doing them and then the more i started reading about everybody else around the world i realized there were some patterns there and the book sort of took shape from there you described, too, having a year on your contract to write the book oh, yeah. right the same time your daughter's born. So yeah. I wondered if um, your, I mean, I think it was maybe also around the time Ta-Nehisi Coates's uh, Between the World yes. and Me came out as a letter to his son, yeah. kind of thinking, again, about the small story of his own relationship to his son and how to talk about race and how to talk yeah. about existence. Um, I wondered if you were influenced by that. Yes, and, um, I love book, him. If yes. the book changed, you know, <laughs> from the essay into something else because you were thinking of your daughter in some way writing to her future self. Absolutely. I mean, I, it would be a totally different book. So I wrote the proposal, like I think I finished the proposal when I was like just pregnant and I got the contract um to write and then I had to fin or I, I guess I didn't have to but in my mind I had to finish the outline before I gave birth and I was having these like you know day dream nightmares day mares of like my water's gonna break of the public library and I'm not gonna finish in time which would whatever it would have been fine but this was was going on. so I got it done and like a week before she was born and um and then I you know had like a month or two where I didn't do anything except you know, produce food to keep a human alive. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I sort of slowly started going, you know, writing a few hours at a time. And, um, you know, I, uh, I really am like a lifelong procrastinator. I really <laughs> like, I'm just, I was lacking some uh, get up and go all my life and would like do assignments like start them at like nine o'clock before they were due and things like that is terrible um and then all of a sudden this idea of like i have three hours right now where i have a babysitter and i cannot go upstairs and like 
pay that woman and know that I just looked at Instagram for three hours. <laughs> so I have to actually just write some words down. And it was amazing because I think I was more efficient um, because of my daughter than I would have been otherwise. So in that way, it's a totally different book because I handed it in on time. Um, <laughs> but also in another way, it's a totally different book because it's right. You, it, it, It's not just about me as like, you know, looking back to my ancestors and, you know, all of our ancestors. Um, but it's about what comes next and what can we bequeath the next generation. Um, and, you know, I, and, and what, what's, what are the things that, that we think are valuable and, and what is the information that we've been able to glean now that we, for the first time, you know, really can sort of be in this, seven billion person tribe instead of just being siloed off with our own little groups like we've been until like five minutes ago. The title of the book um, uh, comes from a line in your parents' book, Contact. Yeah. For small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. Yes. And I wondered if you could um, tell us what love is in a cosmic sense to you. No, I don't know. No, <laughs> I just think, you know, for me, it's um, this idea that the more information we have about our place and the smaller we are in contrast, right? Because we thought that we were the center of everything and the sun went around us and all these things until very recently. And now that we are just the picture just zooms out every day and we're just smaller and smaller, which you know, again, existential dread, that's real. But so then what are we left with? And it's this idea that we are in it together. We're all right here, right now, at the same time, where we are members of the same species on this little out of the way rock. And compared to everything else that we can have a glimpse of, we share so much. And it's so easy to get bogged down in the unbelievably minor, tiny differences between us that are so ridiculous in the grand scheme of things compared to what we share. And I think that if we can sort of focus on that and, you know, falling in love, that kind of love, I think is such a source of so much of the beauty in the world, the love you feel for your family, for your kids, for your parents, but also just the, the feeling of like we are in it together on this beautiful blue and green planet and we're here maybe maybe just very briefly and we don't know what else there is but we're here right now and there if that can solicit some kind of thrill and warm feeling inside us instead of just you know terror i think that would be good well we'll come back to terror in a moment <laughs> um it's my favorite subject but um but uh uh, connected to love and connected to this idea of um, understanding through memory mm. and history um, that we aren't alone. Mm. Um, I was thinking of the what it was like, this wonderful moment. Your mother has gone on, Andrian, 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 to uh, reboot Cosmos yeah. with yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson yeah. uh, as the host. And um, it's very exciting and uh, uh, um, you got a call from her one day. Oh, uh, yes. She had cast you as your grandmother. Yes. 
There is a scene in the season, the next season, um, where my dad is a little boy. And I talk about this in the postscript. And, you know, a lot of, I also talk, so my grandmother, his mother, um, she, she, when I was a kid, people were like, totally freaked out because I would laugh exactly like her and you know that feeling where you're just like oh that is just eerie and I was constantly being told how weird it was um but um I had never met her because she died like nine months before I was born and it would have been really easy I write about this in the book to be like there's something a little you know whatever, for lack of a better word, woo-woo, you know, about that. But the way my parents explained it to me is this idea of, like, there is a secret code in your blood that connects you to your ancestors and to people who you will never know, you will not meet, but they are, there's some elements of their personality or the way they look or their idiosyncrasies, you know, that are in there. And you're, you know, if you have children, they will have some of that. And this can go, this, you know, may go on long after you're gone and some part of you will go on and that that's beautiful and worthy of celebration. And it's independently verifiable whether you believe in it or not, you know? And um, so anyways, I always felt this. I also got her first name, Rachel, as my middle name. So I felt very connected to her. And then my mom calls me um, to say that there's going to be a scene. Um, no, no, not a, it's not a speaking role, <laughs> um, but there's going to be a scene of my dad as a kid. Um, and what I sort of in the background, um, as a, you know, featured extra, um, want to play my grandmother. And it just felt like this, I don't know, this amazing thing of like time travel, which is another theme in the book and something I'm really was always been obsessed with and it just felt like you know you go in and there's a sound studio and it's a set that looks like an apartment in Brooklyn in the 1940s and there's all these little details and there's a re- the real picture of my great I guess great 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 grandparents I have to check the number of grades that hung in our house growing up it's that picture is in the set you know and these things that feel like really I mean it creates the illusion of time travel in this way that was sort of like I mean a dream um and you know the little illusion for a moment of getting to bridge those decades um into a place that we you know I don't I won't ever get to actually go that's beautiful um you you just mentioned time travel, and it reminded me again of your father um, uh, dissecting like Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and you know, sort of wishing that they were more scientific and more real. And um, he he mentions um, how, for example, in um, Star Wars, um, in the first scene, we see white humans in another galaxy and you know why does that have to be wrong it could be it could be more real i mean it could be this galaxy my my parents would always say like if we share a planet with like snails like the idea that creatures from other planets have like a head and two arms and two legs is just like seems unlikely Um, and i just think you know of course it's like human beings you know where it's it's not it's because we want to feel 
like it's about us. And, you know, that's that's how we tell stories. That's how we've always told stories. I, I love, though, that your father wanted to watch Star Wars, but he wanted it to be, like, more right. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I was thinking of... Um, uh, something you describe about time travel that actually we do time travel. Yeah. It's just, it's not like that. Could you give yes. us an example well, of time we, So travel? we would like watch like the Back to the Future trilogy like over and over again. Um, and um, I loved that. And I just was really like... V- you know, very, I guess it's kind of reflected in the book because I am very interested in these celebrations and rituals from different periods and time and, you know, different places. But I was just always was like, a, you know, I was like, like a nerd. So like, that, you know, um, and um, my dad and I would just this longing to time travel as a kid and to see these places that I was reading about, like, you know, in 3D, viscerally, and like my dad would say, again, accuracy, he would say, well, we are time traveling. It's just one second at a time into the future. And I'd be like, that's not what I mean. Um, But it was, it's true. I mean, it is amazing. And, you know, you, right, it's like anything, it's so hard to feel it when it's happening constantly and in very small, it's like lying on the ground and trying to feel the earth rotate, you know, but then when you talk to somebody who, you know, like my grandfather lived to be 99 years old. And like, when you talk to somebody who, you know, has seen these great transitions, um, technologically, culturally, you sort of get a window into that. I mean, I always think about my mother and I always, this is, <laughs> so my, my great grandmother lived to be like 102 and I overlapped in time with her and her, she knew her grandfather when he was very old and we did the math and of course they were not in the United States they were in Eastern Europe but we did the math and I because I knew her I knew someone who knew someone who was born when Thomas Jefferson was president of the United States which seems impossible that seems crazy (laughs) Um, but you have these moments where you feel the passage of time and I think that's why we have like birthdays and anniversaries and holidays because it's again this constant change i mean and even the idea of a birthday or an anniversary is this astronomical thing like we just decided that when we're in the same place in relationship to the sun that we were when the thing happened that's when we're going to like talk about the thing again and celebrate it and whatever um and i write in the book that it's like we are in the same place in relationship to the sun, but the entire solar system is moving and the galaxy is moving. So we're not exactly in the same place, which is sort of like a good metaphor for what it feels like. You know, it's the same time of year. Maybe you have a certain tradition on your anniversary or on your birthday, but it's like everything's a little different every year. And I don't know, that's also a kind of time travel. And as is uh, playing your grandmother yeah in, yeah uh, in the cosmos reboot totally <laughs> totally so maybe in our last minutes we um we could look at um look toward the future um i'd love to talk i'd love to go back to fear oh perfect and existential Great. Dread, <laughs> um, because i think it's appropriate for our moment and i think you have um kind of a wonderful way of looking at reality um optimistically but also in a way that feels very real and scientific and true and maybe points to 
things that we can do in our own lives, not only to create meaning, but um, to address the realities of our time in a way that feels meaningful. Yeah. And, um, and then I'd love to ask you what you're thinking about next. So, oh, yes. um, so first, I wanted to ask if you would read one of my favorite passages in the book um, about primal fear. Oh, yeah. Oh, great. Thank you. All right. We make rituals out of facing our fears, wrestling with them, even making light of them, beautifying them. Life used to be scarier. We evolved from creatures who were prey in the darkness of a world where we had not yet gained control of fire. No light but the moon and the stars. Imagine those long winter nights. Imagine what an advantage fear was and how quickly those who were unsuspicious of the sounds in the forest were devoured. <laughs> Happy Halloween, guys. <laughs> it made me think um, that, yes, you know, imagine life before we had fire and we depended for light on external sources. Um, and then I thought, um, just just thinking of some uh, books that I'm reading for courses I'm teaching this semester, we're talking a lot about climate change. Mm. We read Amitav Ghosh's um, The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable, and Sonali Agala's Wave, which is about uh, a woman who loses her entire family, her two children, her husband, her parents in the uh, tsunami of 2004 mm. off the coast of Sri Lanka. And so, in some sense... Um, it's what you've been talking about, that we, we look back at primal man and think, wow, he's not, you know, thank God our life isn't like that. And yet then I think about, uh, you know, um, uh, wave and um, the, the world can change at any moment. And what Amitav Ghosh talks about is um, that in South Asia, you find a lot more novels are addressing um, tsunamis, um, mm. uh, SARS, you know, um, uh, earthquakes, you, you know, all kinds of um, climate events that are affecting hundreds of thousands of people, uh, many of them women and children, mm. very poor people living, you know, in very low-lying areas. And so in a sense, you could say that we have access to that primal fear all the time, and particularly through the lens of literature and cinema, which can enlarge our empathy by allowing us into the lives, like you played your grandmother mm. in, you know, co uh, Cosmos, um, that we have access to that. And, and what Ghosh invites us to do as artists is to really stop thinking of nature as static and outside of us yeah. and to really envision, dare to envision um, our world is one of constant change yeah. that is not um, uh, n n not um, particularly thinking about our survival. And so I wonder if you have thoughts on how how um, we can use fear, you know, that maybe existential yes. dread is a kind of evolutionary advantage. Yeah. And how could we use it? Um, I definitely think fear is an evolutionary advantage. I mean, if you're just like, oh, a tiger, that's fine. Um, you know, that's you're not going to pass on those really relaxed genes very long. <laughs> um, and, um, but I think that we're so removed, many of us, if we're lucky and you, you know, live in a 
safe place, um, we're so removed from that fear that we manufacture it for ourselves in these artificial ways. I mean, I think that's why, like, we have amusement parks and why we, like, people are, like, obsessed with true crime because we still have this urge and it's, you know, but if you're, if you're at the top of the food chain and you, you know, are not contending with um, life or death situations on a daily basis. It's just sort of dormant and it doesn't, I think we have, it comes out in ways that we wouldn't necessarily expect. But in terms of, you know, that sense of hopelessness that can sometimes come with existential dread, I think if you're, again, if you're secular or you sort of, I mean, I'll put it this way. One of the things I admire most about religious culture is the social pressure to do good works and the organizational functions to do good works and to come together to help when somebody is in need. And I wish that that was more a part of a regular pattern in secular culture. I mean, part of the problem is it's really hard to congregate if it's, you know, not organized in that way that's passed down through the generations. Um, but I think if you don't think that everything happens for a reason, if you don't think that there is like a safety net of like the bad guys are going to get their comeuppance and the good guys are going to get their reward, if you don't think it works that way, then I think we have to band together to make things more fair and to actually you know, move the world closer to how we want it to be. And I think some of that fear can be harnessed into working together now in this tribe of 7 billion people. Um, and it's really easy um, to, you know, think about people who are living in far off places who are in, you know, for example, living in low lying areas who are in really grave danger because of climate change. It's just so easy to put them out of your head and say, well, they're not, that's not part of my life. I'm not affected by them. I don't know them. And I think one of the, hopefully, one of the great things about technology and the fact that we all have these unbelievably useful rectangles in our pockets is that we can get a sense of the other members of our tribe and how we can come together to do more for each other and create the safety net that we maybe wish existed. So my last question is, um, did this book, writing this book, or your life in the time that you wrote this book open up new avenues of interest and obsession for you? And oh. uh, what are you thinking about and excited about now? Oh, um, I really, I mean, there's probably a few different answers to that question, but um, I really would like to write a children's book, maybe because I have a two-year-old and I read a lot of children's books. Um, and I just think there's some of, I mean, there's some stuff in this book of mine that would not be good in a children's book. Um, but there are some things that I think could be really beautiful and um, might be really nice for for a little person to hear. Um, so I'd love to work on that at some point. Thank you, Sasha Sagan, for coming to San Francisco and to CIRS. <laughs> My pleasure. It's such a, such a lovely place to be. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. 
If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>